0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
0: BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Welcome to Any Questions and this week we're in the Yorkshire town of Keithley, which lies between Bradford and Skipton, where the River Worth joins the River Eyre. A settlement was first mentioned here in the Doomsday Survey of 1086 and today almost 50,000 people live here. Our host is Keithley Shared Church, a place of worship for both Anglicans and Methodists since 1975. On our panel, Jake Berry is Northern Powerhouse Minister and the MP for Rossendale and Darwin in Lancashire. The Northern Powerhouse is, of course, the ambition to bring the cities, towns, and rural communities of the north of England and Wales together in terms of transport, investment, and infrastructure. Tim Farron is the MP for the rural seat of Westmoreland and Lonsdale in the Lake District. He's a former leader of the Liberal Democrats and currently speaks for his party on communities and local government. In the immediate aftermath of the EU referendum, Tim positioned the party to fight a destructive hard Brexit, which has become its defining position in recent years. Dan Jarvis is the MP for Barnsley Central, and since last year he's also the Mayor of the Sheffield City Region, which is the combined authority for South Yorkshire. Originally born in Nottingham, his selection in the notoriously tribal county of Yorkshire made him the first non-Indigenous Labour candidate there since 1938. Alex Phillips is a Brexit Party MEP representing the South East constituency. Her party topped the polls in the European Parliament elections back in May. Alex was head of media for the UK Independence Party from 2013 to 16. She briefly defected to the Conservatives, attracted by May's barnstorming start full of promises, but says she soon became disillusioned with her delivery on her pledges. That's our panel. Let's have our first question.
1: Gainer Riley. What does Boris Johnson's lack of support for Kim Darroch say about future relations with the US in a post-Brexit future? Tim Farron.
2: Well, I feel vaguely sorry for, for Boris Johnson because earlier today Donald Trump tweeted that he rather liked Kim Darroch afterwards, which means now Boris will have to change his opinion too. Um, LAUGHTER I I worry massively about it. Uh, Essentially, uh, Boris Johnson's not just knee-jerk, but considered and repeated on four separate occasions during the ITV debate the other night, his instinct was to throw under the bus Britain's ambassador so that he could appease Donald Trump. And it seems to me that, I mean, I'm a patriot, I want my Prime Minister to be a patriot, and a patriot puts his country and his country's ambassador before the President of the United States. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, the the leaking of uh, the memos, of the emails, is massively destructive to our reputation around the world and undermines the ability uh, of officials of all kinds to be able to give decent, candid advice to politicians. What that will mean in future is there will be less of that going on and politicians will make even worse. Worse decisions than they do already. But fundamentally, what we saw, possibly right just before he becomes Prime Minister, is Boris Johnson choosing to put loyalty to Donald Trump before loyalty to his country. He is not fit to be Prime Minister.
0: Boris Johnson has said subsequently that he regretted Sir Kim's resignation. He's told Andrew Neil that the debate, he believes, was a factor in Sir Kim's resignation, but he believes his words were misconstrued. Um, Dan Jarvis.
3: Well, Kim Darrick has spent all of his professional life serving our country as a diplomat. He's been doing an incredibly important job uh, for our country in the United States. And I think at the heart of this question is the issue of judgement, the judgment of whether it was the right thing for Kim Darroch to include the sensitive information in the diptales that he sent. And I think it was, because that is precisely the job of our ambassador, to to give that frank um, uh, advice and guidance back to our uh, foreign office in full confidence. I think um, the judgment of President Trump, again, has been questioned in the way in which he responded to the remarks when they found their way into the public domain. But also, let's not lose sight of the fact that somebody with malice of forethought has leaked this information. And I hope very much that that person, given the seriousness of what they've done and the undermining of our important relationship with the United States, will feel the full force of the law. But it is also about the judgment of the men who aspire to be our next Prime Minister. And they both had the opportunity, when asked about it earlier this week, to be fair to Jeremy Hunt. He gave equivocal support for our ambassador, and Boris Johnson didn't feel that he was able to do so. I think that that is regrettable, and I think... It is incredibly important that in our strategic and special relationship with the United States, we demonstrate that, yes, they are an ally, but where we think they get it wrong, where we think they make mistakes, where they think they fall short, we will stand up to them and tell them. But the really important thing that comes next is what happens in terms of a replacement for Kim Darroch. Now, there have been various names that have been bandied about. It's important that we get this right. And I think, and we'll see whether it is a judgment that it will be made by the current Prime Minister or the next one, But the most important thing is not to look at the voting record of anybody who might want to do this important job. The most important thing is that our Prime Minister selects a future ambassador based on their ability to do their job.
0: And should that future ambassador necessarily be from the civil service? Could it be a completely different sort of appointee? Um, I I think
3: that we run the risk uh, of opening up some... Uh, something of a can of worms if we go down the route of political appointees I think we should be very proud of our ambassadors I think we should be very proud of our diplomats they do a very important job around the world they're very skilled in what they do and the criteria that should judge the next ambassador to Washington should be on their ability to do that most important job not on what they think about Brexit or any other issue.
0: I should add, there is now a police investigation into that leak. Alex Phillips.
1: Um, Look, the primary issue for me here is the fact that secure diplomatic channels have been compromised. It is the job of a diplomat, it's the job of an ambassador to be able to communicate openly and fairly with their governments, their perception of what's going on within that particular administration and the minute that's compromised, that's a compromise of national security. I think it's lamentable, frankly, that Boris Johnson doesn't have the forethought or the diplomatic ability to realise that when he says things they could be misconstrued. I think that's extremely worrying that he will be the next Prime Minister and he says, I was misrepresented. How many times can you be misrepresented? Because believe me, when you're a head of state, you don't have that many chances. You Britain on the world stage. But what I would say is this. Um, The removal or the standing down of um, Sir Kim Darek, I think it's quite noble on his part because he's realised that his position has become untenable. But we cannot leave that vacancy open interminably. We have a situation at the moment arising in Iran where the UK is caught between the middle of EU foreign policy and American foreign policy and not having an ambassador in the White House is frankly naive and irresponsible. So we need to fill that position. Politics is not a personality con- contest when you get to head of state level. There are lots of politicians, lots of presidents of other countries that we might say we don't get them culturally, we don't necessarily agree with their attitudes on certain things, but diplomacy rises above that. Um, and there's this obsession with constantly looking at Boris John- uh, um, Donald Trump, the man, and not saying we've got to deal with America as an ally. So actually we need somebody, I think, who can navigate the stormy waters of Trumpism because he is the head of state of America. They are our closest ally, but at the same time, they need to be free to do that job without impunity. If I go
0: back to what Boris Johnson actually said on Tuesday night, he said, I will say, what I'll say is that I and I alone will decide who takes important and politically sensitive jobs, such as the UK ambassadors of the US. He was clearly mindful of that relationship and mindful of... Of where, where the power in that particular appointment lay.
1: Yeah, he, he's mindful, he's rather presumptive because he's not the Prime Minister yet. I think we see it as a foregone conclusion, certainly. Um, but and he must but, you know but, but I think that we, we need to get that position filled. Okay. We are at the moment, as I said, entering a potentially difficult situation in the Middle East. Jake
0: Berry, you're in the Johnson camp. I am. Um, so let's focus on <laughs> There's a few other people
4: in the Johnson camp as well. Uh, let's, let's focus on what he actually said. It's, it's really... Careful. It's, we need to be clear what he said. It's, it, he said it is his job, if he is Prime Minister and his job alone, to appoint or remove British diplomats. And I think that is so important because it is a, a clarion call going out to Donald Trump saying, you do not decide who the British ambassador to the USA is. The British Prime Minister decides... And that is the point Boris is making, and he made very forcefully. And the real issue is that we have to have diplomats who can speak truth to power. We have to have diplomats who will give unvarnished opinions back to their home government. And Sir Tim Derek was a fine civil servant. We should be very sorry to see him gone. And, you know, the person who is responsible for this is the person who leaked this information. I'm very pleased there is a police investigation. But what we have to push for is for that person who is deeply disabilised the special relationship between Britain and the American Prime Minister to be prosecuted for it.
0: Just to go back to your uh, statement about Boris Johnson, isn't the impression that many people have been left with that, in a sense, Donald Trump, by his tweets, by his statements, it was Donald Trump, in a sense, who had the say, the final say, on who the ambassador should be? Well, the
4: reason Tim Darrett resigned as I, and Kim Darrett, sorry, he resigned as I understand it, is he'd been... Stopped having access to the White House. Now, clearly, he cannot do his job as the British ambassador to America if he cannot get in to the White House. And I would say to the person who's leaked this look at what you have done. You have stopped a fine public servant who has devoted his whole life to serving his country, doing his job. And in truth, if you can't get access to the White House and you can't get diplomatic relations with the American government and the president, you cannot continue as the ambassador. And that is clearly the decision he made. Um, and I think it's a great pity.
0: And just to go back to Gaynor Riley's uh, original question, what is the impact on relations with the US in the post-Brexit future? Are they damaged, or is it clear that if we were to negotiate a, a free trade agreement, to begin negotiating a free trade agreement uh, with Donald Trump, that actually the power lies very much with the United States?
4: Well, clearly, they have been damaged by this, and that is why I think it's so appalling that we've had this breach of intelligence. But, you know, Tim, in his initial response, said, you know, it's a, he, he seems to think it's a bad thing that someone who potentially could be our next Prime Minister has a close relationship with the President of the United States. As our closest ally, I think that is a good thing. We want a trade deal from the United States, we want a strong relationship.
2: I think the relationship between our Prime Minister and the President of the United States ought to be close and not one, which involves the, uh, the President of the United States saying jump and the Prime Minister saying how high.
4: But he didn't. <laughs> Tim, uh, you know, I, I would refer you back, not to the newspaper clippings, not to what's been reported, to what Boris Johnson said.
3: Well, I saw him if he becomes the Prime Minister, it is the
4: British Prime Minister and the British Prime Minister alone who should determine who our ambassador is, no ifs, no buts. That's the right thing to do for our nation.
2: And in his actions, sorry to make this a, an ongoing thing here, but in his actions, uh, undoubtedly Kim Darroch, we understand, was planning to tough it out. And when he saw the next Prime Minister of our country throwing him under the bus, not once, but four times in succession on the ITV debate, he decided that was the point to indeed throw in the towel. So when it came to the reality, when it came to walking the walk, not just talking the talk, Boris Johnson allowed our, our ambassador in the United States to pay the price he gave in to Donald Trump at that moment. The optics are terrible. It makes us the weak partner in that relationship, and that is no way to set out on the future for our country.
0: On Twitter, Alan Marshall says, whether or not Darek's position was made untenable by the leaking of confidential memos, it was still entirely wrong for Johnson not to voice his support for a UK ambassador. But of course, he's thinking first of himself and his relationship with the US and its president. If you want to have your say, hashtag BBCAQ. Let's move on to our next question. Caroline Jones. Today, Theresa May admitted that she misjudged the ability of the House of Commons to compromise. How will the next Prime Minister be able to deliver on their promises? Jake Berry.
4: Um, well, I think Theresa May has been a fine Prime Minister for this country, and I think that history will be a lot kinder to her than either the House of Commons or the media has been, but only time will tell that. Look, I'm supporting Boris Johnson in this leadership campaign, and the reason is that he has committed, and he is the only person who's seeking to be our next Prime Minister who has committed to leave the European Union on the 31st of October, no ifs, no buts, do or die. Now, that's a big statement. How are we going to go about doing it? Well, first of all, if you don't have a deadline, negotiations are meaningless. And before I did this job, I worked in one of the biggest law firms in the world, and I can tell you, deals only get done when you have a deadline. The second thing is that we have to prepare for no deal. Because when our Prime Minister goes to Europe and says, no deal is better than a bad deal, not only does our Prime Minister have to believe it, but the European Union has to believe him as well. And you can only do that if you make proper preparations. But doesn't
0: that get to the heart of this question? Because the House of Commons has repeatedly said that it doesn't accept a no-deal Brexit. We've had John Major this week saying, a former Prime Minister saying, he'd seek a judicial review in the courts if the Prime Minister attempted to prorogue Parliament, sideline Parliament. Um, And Philip Hammond has backed him up too. How on earth can you get a no-deal Brexit past Parliament?
4: So I think, first of all, since we last voted on no-deal, the... People's opinions have changed. We've had the European elections and two major parties in the House of Commons, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, to write good kicking from from the Brexit party here sat next to me, and I think that's concentrated MPs' minds. And actually, when you go round and talk, and I have spent a lot of time in the last few weeks talking to colleagues about this, their position isn't often that they don't support no deal, it's that they won't support no deal with no plan, That's actually quite a reasonable position to take if you happen to be an MP representing a farming constituency or a manufacturing constituency uh, or, or one in the food processing industry. So by properly preparing for no deal... We will be able to demonstrate to people if, and it certainly isn't our prepared route, preferred route, we'd be much better to have a deal. But if we are, as a country, put into the position of having to pursue no deal, and it won't be the choice of this country, it will be the choice of Europe and the European Commission, then we must be ready. And I believe, although it hasn't been tested yet, that there is likely to be a majority in Parliament for no deal with a plan. Tim Farron. Blimey. Um, so, uh, well, first of all,
2: Theresa May uh, deserves uh, you know, an amount of credit. Uh, I've always thought her has been a straightforward and decent person. I always liked her from the, the I met her when we were both annihilated by Hillary Armstrong in North West Durham in 1992. And I, I liked her then, and I, and I still like her. And, I t- and here's the credit that she is due for this last three years is she is the one solitary human being who has ever presented a concrete version of Brexit that wasn't utter and total fantasy. And it got voted down by the House of Commons. Why? Because Brexit means different things to different people. And I want to try and say something now which might unite everybody here, whether they are pro or anti-Brexit, and it's this. It's all David Cameron's fault. Um, and, 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 And here's why... here 's why here 's why, and it 's this: You might think the European Union is terrible, and remain is awful, but it was a clear, concrete, obvious thing, a tangible thing but it Does Brexit mean vote leaving with no deal? Does Brexit mean uh, vote leaving with Mrs May's deal? Or does it mean Norway? Or does it mean the Customs Union? Because the reality is this. If Parliament were to muster a majority for any of those versions of Brexit I've just come up with, or one you might come up with, can I be sure of this? It will not be the will of the people. The majority of the British people will not like what is agreed by Parliament if Brexit is passed, because a sizable proportion quite justifiably, of those who voted Leave will say, hang about, that's not what I voted for. If you ask a vague question on a ballot paper, don't be surprised if it's not easy to implement. And I think that one thing that politicians need to start doing is being realistic with people. Stop peddling fantasy. You think there's a chance that I am going to vote for, no deal, managed or otherwise, when my farmers will be thrown under the tractor by that happening. A 40% increase in their tariffs, decimation of sheep farming in Cumbria. You think I'm going to vote for that? You are living on, cloud cuckoo land, I will stand by my farmers and by my communities. There is no easy way out of this. It's this the honest thing we have to say to the British people. Between us, let's blame Cameron, but let's take collective responsibility maybe. Between us, we are in this mess. There is no easy way out. But the least awful, and the only one which entails any, de- any democracy whatsoever, and any chance for progress and closure, is that we put this matter back to the British people, let them decide, do you want the deal that Mrs May negotiated, or do you rather keep the deal that we've currently got and remain in the European Union.
0: Alex Phillips, strangely, I'm going to come to you.
1: Gosh, where do I begin? I've got a list of about 10 things I want to say now. Um, First of all, I don't want to blame David Cameron for the referendum. I'd rather blame Nigel Farage because I think if he wasn't yapping at the heels of Cameron, we wouldn't have been given the option of actually enacting the greatest democratic exercise in our history and I think it's tragic actually that that exercise has been skewed within the prism of party politics and this is the canker and the stagnancy of two party politics and going back to Caroline's question, she said what's going to happen now with the change of leadership? The problem is everyone's now treating Brexit as a political football and what I'm hearing with the leadership debate in the Conservative Party is not how do we enact good governance? How do we deliver on democracy? How do we represent the people But who will preserve the brand of the Conservative Party? Who is silver-tongued enough to creep them over the line and get jobs for the boys so MPs retain their seats? It's not about representing the people. It's about representing brand blue. And that is what I think is frightful. We're entering an era now of coalition politics. The polling is showing us that. I'm actually pleased the Lib Dems are coming up strong. I think Tim's a fantastic politician. And actually, I like them because they represent something. They represent conviction and policy, perhaps the other end of it to me, but what I see the main fault is, with our current political system, is you've got an establishment who feel entitled to power and their focus and their guns are trained on one another, not on doing the job in hand. Alex, I'm
0: going to interrupt you for a second because I just want to bring in, Jake Berry, I, I think what you're being accused of there is putting party before country.
4: No, absolutely not. Look, I want to be part of a Conservative Party that delivers Brexit. I take absolute issue with what Tim says about we should have another referendum. We've had one. How many times does Leave have to win for us to get on and deliver Brexit? I agree with that. I agree with that. You know, Tim, I make a simple calculation, and I invite you to make the same one. 17.4 million people voted Leave. 300 MPs want to block it. Whose side are you on? I'm on the side of the people. Whose side are you on? How many of them voted for No Deal? (laughs) How how many of them voted for No Deal?
1: to say, a second referendum is not going to cure things because the problem is the first referendum has been so discredited that how would we decide what's on the ballot paper? How do we determine the franchise? How do we circumvent and avoid accusations that the claims made in those promises are illegal and drag people to court that there's foreign funding? What sort of excuses are we going to come up with to make sure the second referendum is discredited when it doesn't go the way that certain people in certain pressure groups and political parties want it to go? I actually think it will really reopen the wounds the only way to settle this argument is to say let's enact the result of the first referendum if in 10 years time people say change of heart then we do it but you can't have a second referendum based on actually disregarding the result of the first but isn't... that is frankly anti-democratic
0: isn't the problem as the question implies that there isn't much agreement on what enacting mm. the first referendum means yeah.
1: No, I think there is, and I actually think if we all wind back our recordings and look on YouTube at what everybody says, from all quarters of that campaign, it was very clear that leaving the EU was leaving the institutions of the EU. And what we're being dragged into now is this idea that we should be in a customs union via a backstop. No, we leave the European Um, we leave the European single market we leave the European customs union we leave the jurisdiction of the European courts of justice. There can be future cooperation as a third nation in the agencies. Things like Erasmus where you've actually got 35 partner countries when there are 28 EU member states. There's plenty of opportunities to treat our neighbours as allies and have a wonderful cooperative relationship with them on various levels and across many strata but that doesn't mean our trade policy, our foreign policy the big issues that matter for national self-determination should be made by unelected bureaucrats who none of you really know the names of and you can't vote in or out. That's what we're leaving.
0: Dan Jarvis, Alex has seen the sunny uplands.
3: Well, to go back to the question, which seems some time ago now, there were some very important points made, um, firstly about the ability of politicians to deliver on their promises. I worry that one of the many consequences of the last three years will be a very significant undermining of public trust and confidence in the ability of politicians to get things done. And the other point that was made in in the question was the issue of compromise. I remember being on this programme a couple of years ago and people basically laughed at me when I said it, was that politicians political parties needed to come together and actually try and get something that was difficult to do done in the interest of our country. And one of the greatest tragedies of the past three years is that we haven't been able to do that. The public will judge us cruelly, well, fairly, for not being able to do that. But whilst we haven't been able to agree on Brexit, we haven't been able to address so many of the other massive challenges that our country faces. Let's stay
0: with Brexit, because, of course... If the House of Commons has been dysfunctional on Brexit, so too has the Labour Party.
3: Well, the the, the Labour Party has, and this is no great secret, has found itself on the horns of a dilemma in that we have had voters, members, members of Parliament who've been on both sides of the debate. And I think what we have tried to do, and I accept it has been very difficult, and recent elections show that we haven't been especially successful, but what we have tried to do is bring the country together, because the country was split 52-48. It was split almost down the middle. And therefore, I think there was always going to have to be an element of compromise, but we did stand... The Labour Party stood on an election manifesto and every Labour MP who was elected to Parliament in 2017 stood on an election commitment to respect the result of the referendum. And that's why I still hope that with a new Prime Minister there will be an opportunity to return to the, uh, the, the negotiations that were taking place. I think it's really important that we don't give up on those and have one further final go at, at trying to sort this out for a
4: country's sake. Your party's
0: policy has shifted a bit this week and I think Jeremy Corbyn has now called on the next Prime Minister to hold a referendum on how the UK leaves the EU, uh, whether there is... in in the event that it is a Conservative deal that is on the table, and in which case Labour would be a party of remain in that scenario, in that specific scenario. Doesn't that, in a sense, it's another fudge, a different fudge, but that (laughs) expresses the difficulties that Labour faces. You're not really, even now, pinning your colours to the mast. And if there was a general election, we're not quite sure what would happen.
3: Well, the, the truth of the matter is that there is not a majority in Parliament for a second referendum, nor is there, I believe, a majority in Parliament for no deal either. So what does that leave? It leaves a majority for some form of deal. And what I wish Theresa May had done is taken the opportunity to reach out and enter into a process of negotiation much earlier than she did. There is still a bit of time. The clock is ticking. But we will have a new Prime Minister. There will be a fresh approach. And I think it is in the interest of our country to see how we can work together to somehow resolve this matter so we can move on to many of the other issues that we have to face as a country.
0: Let's have our next question. Josh Paulson. Will the Northern Powerhouse ever be fully charged or are we destined to remain in the slow lane? (laughs) Jake Berry.
4: Well, I would have been really disappointed (laughs) if you hadn't have come to me first. Look, it's a huge privilege to have the opportunity of driving the Northern Powerhouse forward in government. And we have one of the true... Uh, marks of the Northern Powerhouse here on the panel in the Metro Mayor in Dan Jarvis. So just over two years ago, there were no mayors at all in the north of England, but we are the first government in history to take power, money and influence away from Whitehall and politicians in Parliament and return it back to the people of the north. And that's now why 50% of the north of England is now covered by devolution with real, powerful mayors who can drive forward the hopes and the ambition of people where they live. But people also want to see a huge investment in northern transport. This is not a political point. Governments... (laughs) Governments of different political hues for decades have failed to invest in our transport. Now, I've lived and worked in the North my entire life. I went to school on Pacer trains when I lived in Liverpool. I didn't know 35 years later people would still be going to school on the same trains. So we have to massively invest in transport, and that is why I am so committed, and I'm really pleased, actually, that there's been this Power Up the North campaign with local media and papers coming together to the government delivering Northern Powerhouse Rail or Crossrail for the North. And whoever wins the Conservative leadership election. Both of the candidates have committed to be the Prime Minister who deliver crossrail for the North, and Boris Johnson has also committed that the Northern Powerhouse Minister should attend Cabinet to really fire this up through government. And the truth is, the North of England has a bigger economy already... In Scotland Wales and Northern Ireland put together and each of them have their own secretary of state and if we want to drive the life chances of people here in the north of England we need to get that voice at the top table it's not just about metro mayors it's not just about transport it is about creating those high value jobs and improving the education of people across the north we've made a great start but by goodness me I think the best is yet to come
0: Stan Jarvis, you're a good news story, it would seem. Devolved power is perhaps one of the successes. But the IPPR North, for instance, has argued recently that the government had undermined the Northern Powerhouse project while making cuts in public spending. Are you disappointed about how far it's gone?
3: Look, I think the most important thing to say is that the North is a a wonderful place to live. It's a great place to work. It's a great place to bring up a family. Um, And we are blessed with um, beautiful countryside and wonderful, dynamic towns and cities. And it would be churlish not to agree with Jake and accept that quite significant progress has been made in recent years. We've got Metro mayors, we've got Transport for the North, which I think is beginning to make a very significant contribution to the work that has to be done. But what hasn't yet been achieved, and I don't lay the blame entirely at the current government, because actually there's a failure of successive governments to really shift the dial in terms of investing very significant resources or indeed t- tackling the structural flaws that are present within our, in our economy, which mean that regional inequality persists. So, in recent years, we've seen that, uh, and Jake mentioned, transport, um, transport spending has risen by more than twice as much per person in London than it has in the north of England in real terms. Over the same period, the number of children living in poverty in the north has increased by 200,000, up to 800,000.
0: So why are you keeping the faith, then? Others have. And Andy Burnham, the mayor of uh, of uh, Greater Manchester, has talked about the danger that the Northern Powerhouse could be about to fizzle out. Uh, Joe Anderson, the mayor of Liverpool, actually quit the Northern Powerhouse partnership last year.
3: Well, I think what we have to see, um, the next Prime Minister, um, as being an opportunity, really, to provide the resources that we need to unlock the huge potential of the north of England. I think most people now, perhaps more than they did a few years ago, understand that the country, Britain, will only succeed if all of the constituent parts are firing on all cylinders. And that's why just this week... You've seen the Labour Party talk about a national transformation fund. So we've committed to spend £250 billion over a 10-year period so we can reduce those imbalances in our economy, improve our infrastructure and do what everybody here knows that we need to do. And that is very significantly improve our transport services for our people here in the north of England. Tim Farron. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, uh, the...
2: Northern powerhouse doesn't feel very much like a powerhouse and if you're in Cumbria, it doesn't feel all that northern. Apart from that, it's going splendidly. Um, I, I think the a sense, I suppose, from my Perspective. When you see cancelled electrification projects, when you see—again, I arrived here via a PACER train um, uh, from uh, from the other side of the Pennines. Whisper it. Um, uh, you know, we we clearly have a a massive need um, to treat the North with m- more than condescension and patronising slogans. The real problem, I think, is a, a misunderstanding about what the North needs. I, I, by the way, I'm in favour of HS2. I'm deeply worried that Boris Johnson is seeking to undermine it. But nevertheless, I've always thought of it as a kind of southerners' Idea of what's good for the north, you know. If only we could get to London a bit quicker, it'd be all right. And and what we desperately need is HS3. Is that is. Is that East-West link. not? Not And the thing about East-West, you need several bars of it right from uh, the Scottish border all the way down to, to the Midlands. The real problem with the Northern Powerhouse, uh, and this isn't just this government, but it is particularly this government, is a staggering lack of ambition when it comes to infrastructure investment. We face a bigger challenge, even than Brexit, and it is the catastrophe that is climate change. And there is a joyful way of getting our way out of this. There is a... There is a... there There is a joyful patriotic, collective way of getting our way out of this. And it is to invest in the most exciting infrastructure exposure we've had in this country since the time this church was built in Victorian times. Being a country that tackles climate change doesn't just need to be about hair shirt and austerity. It can be about prosperity. This country, after Canada, has the biggest tidal range on planet Earth. We're using diddly squat of it. And we need to be able to invest in our green industries to create jobs and prosperity and leave a country and another North that our children will be proud of us for, rather than us blaming blaming us for. <laughs>
0: Now, Alex, I know you're an MEP for the South East, but I'm going to let you have your say as the token
1: southerner. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Josh, where are the receipts? We've been said we're going to have a northern powerhouse for a decade. What have we had? It's risible. We've got a new layer of governance, apparently, which is brilliant. We've had 15 billion wasted on HS2. Apparently there's a new entrance, new south entrance to Leeds Station. Ten years, is that all they could do? I don't think it's good enough. And now I hear the Labour Party are going to invest 250 billion in the north and around the regions, well do you know why they've done that? Because the Brexit party said last week they were going to do a £200 billion investment and actually we have the receipts and we'll tell you how we're going to pay for that. What we need yes I love big sexy big ticket projects but what we need is real investment in infrastructure because right now things like rail travel are the privilege of the middle class. It's very difficult for a lot of people just to get to work if they work outside of their towns and cities and to be able to afford that on their salaries and actually as Tim was saying, projects that needed to be done, vital projects, electrification of rail, rail lines, the cross Pennine route, that investment has gone. Those projects have been cancelled because of spiralling costs. The simple things haven't been delivered. And 10 years later, we're still talking about investing in the regions. And actually, like Tim said as well, There's this great feeling amongst many Northerners that HS2 is about getting people to London and actually draining the north of resources and dragging people into the capital, not investing in the region. They're not looking at everyday working men and women. They're looking at big business, big banking, and how to create financial centres and really sort of, you know, big-ticket policies that they think are going to get a whole lot of kudos. But do you know what? that's wrong. What we need to do is take the 200 billion that we want to invest that they've clearly tried to go one up on because they're worried about losing votes and put that money into things like infrastructure and the projects that critically need doing 10 years ago when they were supposed to have been done and actually okay. make sure that people have access to things like high-quality broadband and Wi-Fi because that is the fourth utility in this day and age that drives jobs, making sure that's available on public transport. And frankly, you know, if I were you, I would be very worried about the lack of progress that's happened over the last 10 years and you're probably coming up to the age where you're going to go into a polling station and put your cross in a box. I'd be very surprised if you think that the establishment parties are going to deliver on what you've just asked.
0: Okay. Lots of ideas. I think we spent quite a lot of money on the panel as well. If you've got any thoughts about this, any.answers at bbc.co.uk. Andrea Catherwood will be there, 03700 As the Minister, I've right. got to I let mean, you come back, Jake Berry. Sorry to pick up.
4: I mean, first of all, this is a five-year project. It hasn't been going for ten years. George Osborne announced it five years ago. We recently had the anniversary. And in that period, we have made huge progress. And one of the things we should point to is the fact that Manchester is now one of the fastest-growing cities in the world and is one of the top places in Europe to invest. But what I would say is that we can't just focus on these big ticket infrastructure projects. People are more interested in getting between small towns and cities to go to work than they are sort of perambulating across the north in one fell swoop. So that sort of intercity connection from Keithley into Leeds, whether it be bus or rail, is hugely important. And finally, Tim, on the green economy, come on, get out in the north a bit more. The biggest offshore wind turbine field in the world is in Liverpool Bay. They've only got a few weeks left to go because it's going to now be off the Tees Valley okay. in the northeast. So come and get out. We big, are living the, the green revolution. It is creating tens of thousands of jobs today. That is what the future of the north is. And I'm proud to be okay. Minister of the Northern powers because I know living in the north, having done it my whole life, is just quite a cool thing to say you've been able to do.
0: Fantastic. Tim gets an invitation, and you get an invitation to contact any answers uh, or hashtag BBCAQ if you want to speak to us on Twitter. Let's have our next question. Angie Thompson, does the panel think I've earned a pension? Now, I'm assuming that this is about the campaign by the WASP women who've taken the government to the High Court for a judicial review into how ministers raise the retirement age for women. So women born in the 1950s claim the rise is unfair because they weren't given enough time to make adjustments to cope with the years without a state pension. Jake Berry.
4: Um, Absolutely, I think you've earned a pension. I don't want to go into too much detail because obviously there is a court case on. What I'd say is the challenge... The unfair way, actually, a small group of women have been treated by successive governments, not just this, uh, is about where that retirement age should be. The major change to women born in the 1950s was made under the Labour government. And I think without getting into the intricacies of the court case, there is an argument being made, which is hard to disagree with, was the fact that that decision under the Labour government, wasn't properly communicated to people at the time. But I also think you've earned other things, as well as a pension. And that's why I think it's really important that we stand by all the other benefits that people receive who have worked so hard to support our country for their entire lives. And that is why I think the BBC has been quite wrong to abolish the free TV licence for people over 75 It's why I'm pleased to be part of a government that has protected free prescriptions, protecting a free bus pass. It isn't just about pensions. It is about ensuring that people who've contributed their entire life to this country get the retirement and the dignity in the retirement that they both deserve and need.
0: Dan Jarvis, this is a question that comes up very regularly on Any Questions. It's something people clearly feel very uh, strongly about. Was this the fault of the Labour government, a miscommunication, poor communication?
3: Well, I think the answer to your question is yes, of course you've earned your pension. And it has been quite literally heartbreaking meeting with many of my own constituents, many of the Waspi women, to listen to the very significant hardship that they are encountering as a result of that decision. They all tell me that they didn't receive enough notice. They all tell me that they think the decision that was taken was fundamentally unfair, and I agree with them. So the challenge for us all who support the campaign that the Waspie women have run with great courage and great determination is, frankly, to work out what we are going to do about it. And there is a big operation underway in Parliament that... Um, You and your colleagues in that campaign um, have been very effective at making the case, making the case that you have been treated unfairly. And what I hope is that the the current government seeks to address the concerns that you've rightly raised. And if they don't, we need to make sure that the next one does, so that you and thousands and thousands of women of your generation get the pension that they're entitled to and that they
0: deserve. Alex Phillips.
1: Um, I'm going to be frank with you. I'm a millennial and an MEP, so I don't have much skin in the game or knowledge of the issue. But I would say this. Actually, when you've worked all your life and you need to look after yourself in your retirement, it's absolutely vital you have a pension. Otherwise, you're relying on other people, essentially, to become your carers and your funders. Um, What I would say is... If this is a problem now for the WASPy women, and I have utmost sympathy, and I think it's very courageous, the the battle you're fighting, and I support you all the way. And if there's anything I can do in my power as an MEP, I would be all ears. But I think we're actually facing a pension time bomb for my generation, because not only do many of us not even have pensions because we've had job mobility – I'm 35 and I don't have a pension – We don't even have houses that we own. We have nothing. And we have now a future ahead of us with an ageing population. And we're going to very soon face a massive existential crisis in this country of how we look after people in their old age, not just of your generation, but my generation too. And I think the government needs to get real about this and make sure that we have the provisions properly invested and put to one side to make sure that everybody has dignity in their older years.
2: But I think this is, about, this is about justice, and so you absolutely deserve a pension. I think uh, the Waspie women have never said to me that the pension age shouldn't have been raised, but the fact that they were given change notice not once, but twice. We're, home of the, we're at the home of the outstanding Keithley Harriers here, and you know if you're running up a hill, there's nothing more dispiriting than finding out that you're not at the top of it yet, and there's another one just ahead of you. And people who got to a certain age are expecting and planning financially, physically and psychologically for their retirement, so Suddenly find themselves in a situation where there's another hill to go. And what that means for your mental health, your physical health, for your ability to take care of grandchildren is unacceptable. So the WASP women deserve to be paid and paid in full.
0: (laughs) Angie, you asked the question. Do you what's your answer? Well, I'd thank the panel for their honesty, because a lot of the media that I have read seems to be trying to slide around the issue. I agree with the millennial perspective. I think we do need to plan for the future. But I come from a generation of women who thought we were. And I would just say I would like there to be honesty, not trying to dodge the issue. Any answers? 03700. O three seven hundred-one hundred four 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 and one more on Twitter. Dr Helen Jones says, as a waspie woman, I never received any personal notification about the changes. I didn't move house at the critical time. I didn't change my job. We're gonna have one very brief last question.
3: Russell Brown, how do you feel the panel sorry, how how do the panel think we should celebrate the fiftieth anniversary of the first moon landing?
0: Alex, you're very young. You don't remember the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing. I want to say,
1: however, my father sitting in the audience, that his father was one of the leading geologists who studied the very first lunar rock samples brought back. So I think it's actually a brilliantly momentous (laughs) occasion. And what is so sad, actually, is I feel that at the moment, British investment and interest in science, in research, in actually breaking barriers and pushing the boundaries of science forward is a little bit lacklustre. I think we need a bit more patriotism in our achievements to make sure we deliver in the future. Jake Berry, will you be celebrating next week?
4: Um, I'll have a quick look up to the sky, but I think what we should do is create a bespoke fund which supports science and technology learning in young people because they are the generation who probably know how to get to Mars. They may not even know it
3: themselves yet.
0: Dan Jarvis, very briefly.
3: Well. It- The world feels a pretty glum place at the moment, so I think that we should celebrate it with some vigour and some style and make the most of it. But also, also let's take some inspiration. This was an extraordinary achievement, and we face some pretty significant challenges um, as a country uh, in the future. So let's look back and celebrate the achievements of those that have gone before and take heart from it.
0: Tim Farron in 10 seconds.
3: I mean, let's learn the lessons of leadership and teamwork.
2: What John F. Kennedy did was do something that our leaders don't do today, and that is approach a a serious challenge with, A, uh, a complete lack of woe is me, and, B, a total lack of fantasy we could do to learn the lesson of Mr. Kennedy.
0: Tim Farron, Dan Jarvis, Jake Berry and Alex Phillips, thank you very much. That's any questions from Keith Lee. Did you enjoy this podcast? Discover more music, radio and podcasts on BBC Sounds.